Hello and welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm your host, Emily George, and today we have the privilege and honor of having Charles Gabba with us. Charles Gabba is the founder of ACASignups.net, which has been live tracking ACA enrollments since the exchanges launched in October of 2013. His work has been cited by major publications from the Washington Post to the New York Times as being the most reliable source for available up-to-date, accurate ACA enrollment data in the country. Welcome to the show, Charles. Uh, Thank you for having me. Well, we are really excited to have you with us today. And before we launch into um, a lot of the things that we want to discuss with you, would you be able to just take a step back and tell us a little bit about your career journey and how you got involved in your current work? Uh, sure, it's actually kind of a kind of an odd little story, uh, but basically, I, I sort of stumbled into it. To be honest, uh, I uh, was actually a, a, a freelance website developer uh, for over a dozen years, um, and back in fall of 2013, I, I I'm also something of a data nerd, you know, kind of a data hound, and. In fall of 2013, when the ACA exchanges were getting set to launch and there was a lot of hype about them, I became interested in sort of the technical side, you know, as, as a web developer, uh, you know, with the new websites, with healthcare.gov and all that. And, of course, people who uh, should, I'm sure remember that uh, the, the launch of, of the uh, ACA exchange websites was a complete epic disaster uh, for the most part. Uh, the federal exchange was a complete mess, uh, had a technical meltdown. Um, about half of the state-based exchanges had serious problems as well, and it was very ugly. And so in the middle of all that, um, I decided that as, you know, while they were trying to fix the mess, given that there had been so much uh, anger and so much confusion and so much acrimony um, about the, you know, from the political side about the ACA, and then, of course, there are these technical problems, I was just curious, like, how it, like, for all this fuss, is it actually working? Are people actually enrolling? And so just as a hobby, really, um, as kind of a nerdy hobby thing, I just decided to start tracking how many people were signing up. And that's really all it was, was how many people are enrolling in every state in these new you know, healthcare exchanges for, uh, for coverage. And that's really all it was. And um, I just set up a simple spreadsheet and uh, posted that online. And uh, I would just do daily updates of as data came in. And it's the kind of thing that like shouldn't have been necessary because you would think that, you know, that the government would be, you know, the federal government would be posting this themselves or that some of the major news outlets would be. Um, but the government was too busy trying to fix the problems and the news, I don't know, the, the, the news media either didn't do it or they weren't doing it right. Like a lot of times they were just putting down bad information that wasn't, had nothing to do with, like they were saying like, here's how many people visited the website. Like, that's useless. What you want to know is how many people sign up. And anyway, so I decided to do it myself. And it just started from there. And um, so, somehow or another, I became like the like ground zero for all things Obamacare-related, uh, you know, data-wise. Um, I got, uh, at first, it was just a handful of people uh, who, you know, had any interest. And then one day, um, a, couple, a couple of healthcare reporters noticed what I was doing, and they, you know, posted out a link to it and all of a sudden it went viral and next thing I knew I was getting you know, traffic explo- 
promoted and I was being interviewed and all sorts of things. And so since then, yeah, that was seven years ago. And since then, I've um, I eventually expanded the site. I expanded my repertoire, learned a lot more about the healthcare system, and uh, expanded into a full blog. And so, so I've been doing healthcare policy analysis, you know, ever since. And it was supposed to be just like a, a one-time hobby thing. And seven years later, this is like this is what I do for a living now. <laughs> right. Well, I'm I'm so curious. At the beginning, and when people um, were when when the system was when you were actually just setting up the system, where were you getting your data? Where were the sources coming from? Well, it varied. Um, you, Again, you have to remember there was a lot of confusion. Even if everything had worked perfectly, even if, if the technical issue has been very smooth and everything rolled out perfectly, there was still a lot of confusion. Uh, a lot of it was very disruptive in a lot of ways to you know health insurance companies, to uh, healthcare providers. Uh, there was a lot of that. Any, anytime you have a major you know law that impacts a large segment of you know the economy or, or whatever, and um, the technical issues, of course, made all that worse. And then on top of that, you also had, you know, uh, uh, obviously Republicans were very opposed to the law and so Fox News spreading misinformation and, you know, all that. So you're combating all that. The data, uh, it came from a variety of sources. Um, in some cases, it was, to, it was like the state exchanges. There's about a dozen states that run their own exchange. And most of them were actually, you know, about half of them were working pretty well. And most of them were actually providing, you know, updated data on a fairly regular basis, maybe once a week, once every couple of weeks. Uh, in some cases, it was daily. Um, and so I compiled all that. And then for the federal uh, federal exchange, it took them a while to, you know, kind of catch up. <laughs> um, but I got, I managed to get information from them. In some cases, it was interviews that I, people would send me links to local news stories about you know, the state insurance commissioner would, was interviewed in, you know, Idaho or something, or, or the, uh, maybe the, the CEO of, you know, United Healthcare or, or Aetna or, you know, some insurance company, maybe they would issue a statement or, you know, maybe it was in their uh, quarterly, you know, financial filings, right, where they have to disclose certain information. So it was, it was a mishmash of various data sources that I was just compiling together. Uh, to sort of patch it all together, and, and I wasn't perfect. You know, there were some, there were some. Um, I remember there was one story out of, I think it was Minnesota, where the reporter was. They were reporting how many uh, policies had been enrolled in, but but they were counting like you know a whole family. You could have three people in a family, and that's one policy, but it's three people enrolled. You know, so there was some confusion about that as well. In other cases, uh, there was misreporting about standalone dental plans, you know, as opposed to full you know, major medical plans, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So it took a while. It took me a while to sort of sort through, separate the wheat from the chaff and, you know, get, get the hard data. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I, I wanted to just hear you expand a little bit on the Affordable Care Act in general. And, and you know, we've seen what we call, you know, several near-death experiences or, or threats to repeal and replace. And in your opinion, what have been the worst of these threats and why? Well, uh, the most dramatic, uh, you know, splashiest, that is, and, and the closest it's ever come to being struck down was, of course, uh, in this, you know, July of 2017, um, when, uh, you know, it culminated in that the, the dramatic thumbs down from John McCain, mm -hmm. um, you know, on the Senate floor, uh, late at night. Um, and that was after, you 
one one replacement bill after another, and each one was like worse than the one before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they finally, they were very, very close to getting, you know, to getting that process through and ended up, uh, it went through the House and then it came to the Senate and ended up, you know, failing by by one vote. Uh, Of course, I I shouldn't just credit John McCain. Of course, every single Democrat voted against that as well as two other Republican senators at the time. So, but um, that was the closest that the ACA came to being completely, you know, destroyed. Um, the second closest, I guess, would be technically right now because there's this uh, ridiculous lawsuit, uh, you know, the, the Texas Texas versus Azar or Texas versus the U.S. I, I call it the Texas Fulham uh, lawsuit, which, uh, you know, it, it's on hold until the Supreme Court hears it this fall at this point. But, um, you know, it is, it is very close to uh, potentially being struck down by the courts. Um, and that's not the sort of, you know, because that's, that's a, a judicial thing. That's not something that you can't go to your congressperson and lobby them to vote against this because there's nothing to vote on. It's you know, the, the votes are the judges. So, um, it's out of anybody else's hands except theirs at this point, really. Um, short of that, I mean, you know, but there's, yeah, as you've said, there's been many other instances, uh, where it came close to being, struck down or, or at least majorly damaged. Um, the biggest threat before that was uh, back in 2015, there was a case called King versus Burwell, uh, which gets a little complicated, but the bottom line is if that had been successful, uh, then if the Supreme Court had ruled the other way on that, then anyone living in any state hosted by healthcare.gov, which includes here in Missouri, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I believe includes Missouri, uh, anyone living in those states would no longer be eligible for financial subsidies through the exchange, the ACA exchange. It wouldn't have killed the law, but it would have serious, it would have dealt a body blow to it because about two, over two thirds of the country, you know, basically be crippled mm-hmm. um, because they wouldn't be eligible for uh, financial assistance. Fortunately, the Supreme Court ruled the other way on that. And then, of course, there was back in 2012, there was the um, uh, the lawsuit that, uh, you know, which could have stopped the, the law before it really even got started. Um, and that was where the Supreme Court sort of split the baby, in effect, where they basically said the ACA itself is um, is constitutional, but only if you let Medicaid expansion be put up to the states and also, um, you know, that, that they ruled that the, the financial penalty uh, the mandate penalty was a tax, you know, that that ruling was like allowed it to be constitutional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in thinking about, you know, um, if you, I, I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about in your own words, what would be the long term ramifications of um, repealing the ACA? Uh, if you repeal it without a solid plan in place to replace it. And by solid, I mean, you know, not not one of the ridiculous bills that they were trying to throw in 2017 or, or since then, but um, without a well-thought-out replacement plan, which would, you know, keep pre-existing conditions covered with no discrimination on pricing or, or on what's covered or what isn't, and well, all simultaneously making sure that the coverage is affordable for people, you know, then 
if you if it doesn't include all of that and it isn't ready to go right away, that's the other thing, mm-hmm. then devastating. And that's basically what we're facing right now with this uh, with this lawsuit out of Texas. Uh, if the Supreme Court were to rule that the ACA, you know, if they were to strike it down, the there is currently nothing in place that could take effect right away, uh, which would, you know, pick up the pieces. I mean, even uh, even the most sweeping, you know, even something like you know Medicare for all, for example, right. Uh, would take years to ramp up, even if it could get through politically or, you know, and, and all that, it would take years for it to, to ramp up. And during that several year interval, it's, it assumes that the ACA is still in place. <laughs> so if you tear that away and there's, then that, then what you're looking at is, is complete devastation. You're looking at at least 20, you know, usually 20 million people losing their healthcare coverage. Uh, I mean, it's a long, it's a laundry list. It would just be a complete mess. Um, and so that's that's the key thing. Well, in light of our our current COVID nineteen pandemic, how do you think public and political opinions of the ACA are shifting or or will shift? Well, I think a lot more people uh, suddenly appreciate uh, you know having uh, guaranteed you know coverage of pre existing conditions. Um, I know that there was. Uh, I know the, the, the Medicare for all supporters, you know, they, they, the second that it became, you know, the, the pandemic became widespread, they're saying, aha, see, you know, that, this proves. Mm-hmm. And of course, the counter to that as well, several of the countries that have been hardest hit, uh, like the UK and, and Italy have, you know, they have, um, you know, either single payer or some other universal coverage system uh, that's very much like single payer. And they're, you know, it's, it's a, a complete mess there as well. I mean, the, the point is that one is not necessarily connected to the other. You know, having a single payer system does not guarantee that you're going to not going to have a horrific pandemic, uh, and not having one does not guarantee that you will. <laughs> um, but it certainly ha- I, I, I'm, I certainly think that it has uh, strengthened the argument that everybody should be covered. You know, again, universal coverage is not the same thing as you know a single payer. Uh, that's just one route towards it. Um, and I, I haven't seen like the latest opinion polls uh, you know, on like the ACA, but my guess is that support for it will, you know, have, have increased dramatically. Um, and I know I saw a poll just the other day out of Wisconsin. This was specifically in Wisconsin uh, only, which said that from Quinnipiac, I think it was, that said that support for Medicare for all has actually dropped by several points since last fall in Wisconsin, which is kind of interesting. You know, you would think it would be the other way. But I think the point there is that, um, again, it's about a complete overhaul. Like, are you, like, even if that's what you want as your end goal, is this really the time to completely tear apart everything and, you know, replace it in the middle of all this chaos? Um, I think a lot of people are like, well, no, what we need to do right now is a past job, <laughs> you know, to get to tide us over. And then we can look at, okay, what's the next big thing? Um, but that's the thing is what, what it, what I'm sure I'm, I'm fairly certain it is strengthening is people's awareness of and support for ensuring that people are covered in the event of some horrific, you know, health, public health crisis, like we're facing right this moment. Uh, the question of how you, you know, how you guarantee that is, that's the other debate, but but um, I certainly think that it would uh, support the the goals of the ACA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and in your role, um, just to put a little spin on that question is how do you hope that it will shift? Well, I hope it will. I mean, I, I'm um, personally, I am, you know, during the, um, the, the Democratic primary process since over the past year, and of course now it's you know, just down to only one or, or possibly two candidates left. But uh, there was a lot of debate over, you know, Medicare for all versus public option, right? And that was like the big, and it was countless hours spent on that. My personal view is that um, the way to go in the short term is basically a robust ACA upgrade, um, yeah, which is uh, basically what, what, what Joe Biden is basically arguing. His, his health care plan, his vision, is basically ACA 2.0 plus a public option. And I, I, some people lump those together, but I, in my head, I think of them as two separate things. I think it should be ACA 2.0 in the short term. You know, which includes beefing up, the, beefing up and expanding the subsidies and fixing the family. There's basically a lot of checklist stuff that, that should have been fixed. You know, basically just stuff that should have been included in the ACA in the first place, but just wasn't for one reason or another. The phase, and then the second phase after that would be adding a you know public option open to anyone, and then hopefully that would eventually lead to something along the lines of you know maybe single payer or maybe something like the German system. You know, um, you know, there's a number of ways about it, but basically sort of a three-stage process to get towards universal, comprehensive, truly affordable. And I, I, I emphasize truly because you say affordable coverage and the definition of the word affordable, you know, obviously depends on who you are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what the, what the official, uh, you know, the official threshold, income threshold or whatever is, according to the government is not, does not necessarily make sense in the real world for a lot of people. So, uh, but if you can achieve where everybody's covered, they're covered comprehensively, and at a price that everybody can afford, truly afford, then you're there. Um, but I think that's going to take at least three phases, I would think, and it's going to take some time. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in thinking about this upcoming election and, and going back to your role and the way that you are, are collecting data and, and tracking um, enrollment, is there is there are there data that you would love to to gather or analyze in in preparation for fall of twenty twenty that you that you don't have yet or that you would like to have? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, sadly, uh, for the past few weeks, just like everybody else, um, my if you look at my website, you know, today, and you bring up the, the you know the, the dozen or two dozen most recent posts, just about all of them are, of course, about the coronavirus pandemic um, in one way or another. Um, and in terms of tracking data, mostly what I've been tracking is, you know, the sick and the dead. <laughs> you know, that's, it's a very, been a very grim uh, week or so, you know, posting spreadsheet updates of, you know, how many more people were confirmed positive and how many more people passed away. And, you know, hopefully soon it'll be how many people are recovering, right? Um, but, um that's, I mean, obviously, with the election coming, that's going to have a huge political ramifications. Uh, and it's sad that I had to do this, but I had to include columns that don't say, here's, you know, here's all the states and here's all their numbers, but here's how they tend to lean politically and here's what party their governor is a member. I didn't want to do that. It's, it's crass and it's uh, tasteless, but I had to because, uh, to be perfectly frank, the pre- 
president forced, no, kind of forced me to because he's come right out and said that if you're not nice to him, he's not going to help you. You know, he said that just the other day. Like, so clearly there's a partisan, you know, uh, factor here in terms of which states and which regions get help and which don't and so on. Um, and you've got, you know, various people say, you're saying, oh, well, it's, you know, New York, New York and Washington and California, those are the ones that got hit hard and they're all Democratic leading states. So, you know, they're blue states. So, well, guess what? It's a few weeks later now. And now, you know, Florida and Georgia and, you know, Tennessee are getting hit hard, too. So um, it's going to hit everybody. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't care about partisanship or party or politics um, or, you know, gender or ethnicity or any of that's going after everybody. So um, there's going to be a lot of that. Of course, that's going to be a huge factor. Um, the other side of that, I mean, from the ACA itself, is the impact on uh, premiums for next year. Uh, right now, the, the last day or so, the big story right now is that the federal government is refusing to um, to open up a special enrollment period for healthcare.gov. Uh, just about all 12 out of 13 of the state-based exchanges have done so. Uh, but healthcare.gov uh, hosts 38 states, and they have not, and neither has Idaho. Idaho is the one state exchange that hasn't. But uh, healthcare.gov has 38 states. That's you know well over two-thirds of the population, and they're refusing to open up a, um, a formal covid you know, pandemic uh, special enrollment period. Now, the excuse that they're giving is that, oh, well, most of the people who, you know, are losing their jobs you know, by the millions, right? Most of the people who are losing, losing their employer coverage automatically qualify for a special, you know, enrollment anyway because you just lost your coverage. That is true. However, there's a lot of them who don't because if you work for a small business, and if you lose your job with a small business and they didn't provide coverage in the first place, no, under the normal rules, you don't qualify. So that's number one. And number two, even for the million, tens of millions who do, uh, who, who are going to qualify, uh, it's, a, it's a confusing all morning that before I got on this call. All morning I was trying to, to explain and correct to people about who qualifies, who doesn't, who's eligible, who isn't, what you're eligible for, when you're eligible for, all of that. And that's, you know, setting a, a special enrollment period specifically tied to the coronavirus uh, pandemic would kind of wipe out a lot of that confusion because it just say, if you don't have coverage for whatever reason here, you've got a month or six weeks, whatever it is to go ahead and sign up um, and just go to healthcare.gov and do so. And that would clear up a lot of that confusion. And there's going to be enough, there's already enough confusion anyway. People are panicking, they're freaking out, you know, they're trying to file for unemployment. <laughs> they're trying to, you know, um, so and the fact that the federal government is refusing to do that, it's, it's bewildering to me. There's, there's no downside. Even, even the insurance carriers are calling for it. And they're the ones who hate special enrollment periods. You know, they're, uh, they're actually the ones who, who uh, pressured the government into shortening the open enrollment period, cutting it in half in the first place. Um, because they're, they're, they're usually very concerned about the risk pool. You know, what's, because what they don't want is people gaming the system, right? They don't want people who are healthy. You know, they're young and healthy and they say, or you know, they're healthy and they say, oh, I'm not going to get covered because I don't want to have to pay, you know, each month in premiums. And then the second they get diagnosed with something, now all of a sudden sign me up. It's like, it's like trying to buy auto insurance after your car crashes, right? Um, or to buy homeowner's insurance after your house catches on fire. They won't do it. 
Normally, that rule, that, that makes sense. But this is a global, a deadly global pandemic. And it's a whole different, it's a whole different ballgame. The normal rules don't apply. Uh, the insurance carriers know that their risk pools and their actuarial assumptions are completely shot to hell for this year and next anyway. So, you know, so it's in their interest to get as many people signed up as possible as well. Um, and they'll deal with, you know, the fallout from the, uh, the premium issues that'll come later. But I think all of that's going to come into play going into the election this fall. And of course, you've got this lawsuit looming over everything. Your insights into this and your knowledge um, are extremely valuable, and I really appreciate you um, sharing some of those things with us and and just um, shedding light on on some of the issues at hand. Um, as we wrap up, I my last question for you, Charles, is you know what comes next for you in light of your work and this season and your expertise. What's next? <laughs> uh, thank, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate it. And, yeah, you know, it's hard to say. that If you had asked me this question, you know, a couple months ago, <laughs> uh, I would have a, uh, probably have a different answer for you. Um, but, again, like with everything else, uh, the coronavirus pandemic is completely – nobody knows anything. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen, uh, what the situation is going to be a year from now or even, even six months from now. Um, before all this, you know, I would say – I would have said that a lot's going to depend on the election, of course. Uh, if the, the, the you know, two things, basically the election and the lawsuit, um, those are the two biggest or were the two biggest factors. Now you've got a third major factor impacting all of this. Um, if, you know, if, if Donald Trump manages to win a second term, uh, then, you know, that's going to have, <laughs> uh, it's going to be a very different, uh, landscape, uh, than if, you know, Joe Biden does. And of course, you know, if we retake the Senate, or if, if, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm pretty partisan. If, if the Democrats retake the Senate, you know, or if they don't, so there'll be a lot of factors there. Um, the lawsuit. I mean, basically, if the ACA does end up being wiped out, then there's gonna, there's still going to be a whole lot to write about in terms of healthcare data policy analysis. It's just that it's going to be a very different data. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, with with this uh, with this pandemic, I have no idea how that's going to you know impact. Anything I would I would say that I'm, I'm going to have a lot to write about no matter what. Uh, I'm just hoping it'll be more positive stuff as opposed to negative. That's what it's been lately. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much just for your work and and what you're writing and um, the way that you have been able to collect and disseminate this this these data um, have been beneficial to many 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 people. And thank you for being on our show and taking the time um, to just speak with us about your work and what's coming next for you. Uh, again, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at dayhealthstrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. 
Our producer and host is Emily George. Editing is done by Kate Gautam. Special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs.